0: We're so thankful for good music to sing. There's a ton of it out there. There's a ton that's not good. There are songs that we've sung through the ages that are awfully written theologically, but it's wonderful when you find songs that are written well, they're accurate, they are Christ-centered and Christ-exalting, and they sound good at the same time. So I hope you enjoy learning new ones. That's one we'll be singing a lot more, I'm sure, and we're grateful to Steve and Chris for spending so much time to, to look for music like that for us. Okay, you see where we're going? Uh, just find Acts chapter 17 to begin with we'll get to first Thessalonians in just a few minutes but we'll begin in Acts chapter 17 so find that and then we're going to begin with a word of prayer together well let's pray father thank you for um, the truth of who your son is and what that means for sinners Um, the the lyrics to that song were so accurate um Just our struggles in who we are as human beings, created beings, but then what we add to it with our sinfulness. Um, We we have put ourselves in a position where uh, we know there's no salvation for us. There's no way we can rescue ourselves. There's no way we can clean ourselves up and make ourselves right with you. And we're just so glad that we can come to Jesus and rest in him, that we know he has already done the one thing that you require of sinners. He has satisfied you. He has fulfilled your law. He has taken your justice in place of sinners. And our responsibility is just to rest in him, rest in what he has done, trust in his life, his death. And then we're made right with you. And we can sing songs like that with deep gratitude. Not Again, not for what we've done for ourselves or anyone else has done for us, just what Christ has done in our place. So, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we just want more of Christ. Um, If we ever come to your word looking for something else, we're looking for something (laughs) that you didn't say. We're looking for a different focal point than yours, because this is all about your son. This is all about your glory in him and what you've done through him and what you'll do for eternity all through him. So, as we come to Acts 17, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning, I pray that you'll help me. I pray that my thoughts, my emphasis, my concentration, my passion will will all be centered on Christ and Christ alone. And then I pray for these dear folks as they listen. Uh, we know there's a great fight going on in this place right now. Um, the enemy does not want this to take place. The enemy does not want that focus. He does not want glory going to you or your son in any way whatsoever. So he will be trying through his through his unseen spirits, through people, uh, any method he can use to distract or to mislead or deceive in any way or make people misunderstand or hold them in their misunderstanding. We know that that's what he's going to be trying to do. But again, we rest in the fact that you are more powerful. You are all powerful. Nothing can stop what you intend to do. Our scripture passage this morning made that clear. Your word does not return void. It accomplishes exactly what you intend for it. Nothing, no one can stop it. And we believe you have great intentions for your word every time it's open. So, Father, we trust you. We're eager to see what you do. We're open to what you want to do in our own minds, and our own hearts Whatever you do, we we want it all to put all of attention, all the attention on Christ for him to be exalted as he deserves. And we know that when that happens, your people will get the the joy that you promised to us. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us uh, for the last several weeks in this particular study, um, you you should know this by now. And if you haven't been with us, I'm going to kind of fill you in on where we've been very, very quickly. We've been looking at portraits of faith, meaning individual believers in scripture and how they acted as disciples of Christ. We're not talking about the 12 disciples. We're just talking about followers of Jesus Christ. What did their lives look like? What did discipleship look like? What did they, what did they believe? What did they think? What did they feel? And then how did they act that out in relation to Jesus Christ? We've looked at Joseph of Arimathea and Barsabbas and Barnabas and Aquila and Priscilla and last week we looked at the Philippian jailer. Now one of those portraits as you know was a couple but they were a couple brought together as one by marriage and so my point is all of these were individual believers just just people individual people and we learned a lesson from all of those individual disciples of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to put it back up here on the screen for you. We've talked about this week after week after week. And the lesson that we keep seeing is that disciples follow a very predictable pattern. What we see of Christ dictates what we do for Christ because it shapes what we think of Christ. So what that means is disciples follow and serve Jesus actively. They do it in various ways, and they do it to the degree that they see and appreciate Christ's glory. It's all about what we're seeing. If we are seeing Christ's glory, that's going to show up in our actions. If we're not seeing Christ's glory, that's going to show up in our actions too, or the lack of actions as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we keep seeing this in individual disciple after individual disciple. And so it's been pushing us to do what I'll ask you to do again right here at the beginning of the sermon. And that is to examine ourselves. As we compare ourselves with what we're seeing in these individuals, we have to ask ourselves questions. Is there evidence that I am a true disciple of Jesus Christ? We look at their lives, we see things. That shows... He's a disciple. That shows she's a disciple. It shows they're looking at Jesus Christ. So is there evidence that we are true disciples of Jesus? Are we seeing the glory of the Lord? And if so, how is that glory, how is that beauty impacting us? What are we doing because of Christ? You follow that? What am I doing in life? What did I do yesterday? What did I do last week simply because of Christ and what I'm seeing of him, okay? Now, this morning, we're going to look at another portrait, but this time, we're going to kind of need a bigger lens for our camera or we're going to need to back up a little bit. Why do you back up when you're taking a picture? Because there's something larger that you want to get in the frame, so you need to back up to, to be able to include that. Well, we need to kind of do that with our study this morning because we're not going to just look at one person. We're going to look at a whole congregation of people. We're going to look at the, the thefts Thessalonian church. See if I can say that right every time. The Thessalonian church, okay? And to do that, we're going to look at them through two different witnesses. That's why the two passages that I had up here in front of you before, Acts chapter 17 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Acts chapter 17, if you're there, I hope you are, if not, go there. This is Luke's account. So Luke was traveling with Paul and Silas and Timothy, and in Acts chapter 17, Luke records his observation of what he saw of this church when they were with them. So, Acts chapter 17, I want to read the first four verses for Okay, So, you find that in your Bible, follow along. I'm going to read Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Luke writes this. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Okay, we'll read more verses here in just a few minutes, but that gets us started. Now, remember, and if, if you if, if you were looking at what came before this, you'll remember that this, this follows right on the heels of the scene that we were looking at last week. Remember that? Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy had gone to Philippi. They had stopped in Philippi, spent some time there. Remember, they found the, the group of ladies that who would who would pray by the riverside every Sabbath preached the gospel to him. Lydia and her family ended up believing the gospel there. We also know that that Paul cast an evil spirit out of this slave girl, and because of that, there was a massive uproar. Paul and Silas ended up thrown into jail, and at midnight, they were singing and praising God and praying, and that earthquake took place. Remember that? After the earthquake, the jailer was ready to commit suicide. Paul stopped him. Then the jailer asked what he must do to be saved, and Paul and Silas preached the gospel to him and his family, and they believed as well. That's what we looked at last week. And when we come to chapter 17, this group has left Philippi at the request or demand of the authorities in Philippi. They've left, left Philippi and moved on to what I just read to you here in chapter 17. Now, they are still not that far from Philippi. You'll notice they traveled West, you didn't see that, but they traveled west from Philippi. They went through two other towns before they stopped in Thessalonica, which was still within a hundred miles of Philippi. And it's still in Macedonia. So they're still obeying that vision that Paul received, the, the man of Macedonia pleading for them to come over and help the people who lived there. They're still doing that here in Thessalonica, preaching the gospel to these folks. So you ask yourself the question, why stop in Thessalonica when they just passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia? Why stop in Thessalonica? Well, maybe it was because there was no synagogue of the Jews in those other two towns, Apollonia or uh, what's the other one, Amphipolis. Maybe there was no group of Jews meeting in those two towns, and so they just kept moving on, and when they got to Thessalonica we see that there was a synagogue of Jews meeting there. I think that's the case. I guess that's the case because we know how important it was to Paul. His custom was that whenever he went to a new area, he would start there by ministering to the Jews, by going to where the Jews were meeting and preaching the gospel to the Jewish people there. That was Paul's custom as he traveled around. Now, as a side note, Think about what that says about God. Here's Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is sent out by Jesus Christ to preach the gospel. And this apostle of Jesus Christ goes to the Jews first everywhere he goes. And that that kind of boggles my mind because think about who he's going to. In all of these Greek towns, Roman towns, you have these pockets of Jews all over the place. How did they get there? They got there because years and years and years earlier, God scattered their ancestors because they didn't believe him. He he would send his prophets to the people of Israel, and they would tell the truth to the people of Israel, and they didn't believe, and they didn't believe, and they didn't believe until God, in his anger, in his justice, brought armies against them and scattered them out into the nations. So God would be within his rights just to write them off. They, They never listened to me before. And these people, most of them, aren't going to listen to me either, and so I'm not going to take any more truth to them. But here's his representative, and of all the people he could go to first, in every town he goes to the Jews first. Ancestors didn't believe, most of them won't believe, and yet he goes to them first. And to me, that is just the depth of the mercy of God. I'm going to continue to put the truth in front of you. I'm going to continue to give you opportunities. I'm going to continue to reveal myself to you in spite of what you do with it. I'm going to continue to be merciful in your direction. Paul is just the, the messenger. Paul is just the tool of God to show his mercy in that way. Well, when he comes to Thessalonica, here he is in the synagogue. In Paul, Christ's apostles, we find him reasoning, the New King James says, reasoning with the religious worshipers who were there primarily jewish people but there are a lot of greeks there worshiping in the synagogue as well we'll talk about that in just a second so get this picture of paul reasoning with these people don't think billy graham showing up in town standing behind a pulpit preaching a 45 minute message one night packing his bags and moving on to a town and doing the same thing in the next town that's not what's happening anywhere paul goes really but definitely not here in thessalonica he's reasoning with these people This is week after week, probably three or four weeks, but week after week of teaching in the synagogue. This is interactive, okay? So it's not just monologue. It's not what I'm doing this morning, one person talking, everybody else sitting quietly. That's not it. This is conversational. This is back and forth. This is question and answer. This is even debate. Paul saying something, someone arguing with him. Paul addressing the argument, them arguing some more. This is more teaching than it is preaching for week after week after week, which tells me Paul here is going to great effort not just to proclaim this new Christian message, but he's trying his best to help them understand it. Paul wants them to to, to get it. He wants them to to understand what God is up to. What is God saying? What what has God said through his scriptures back in the ages past? He wants them to understand it. And literally, what he's doing here, if you you could see this in, in the Greek language, he is opening up and setting before them the scriptures. That's what it means explain and demonstrate. Opening up and setting before them the scriptures, their scriptures. The scriptures that they read in this synagogue every Sabbath. That's what he's using. He's not pulling some rabbit out of a hat. He's not coming up with a new translation somewhere. These are just the scriptures that they've always used. And he's opening up these scriptures and he's laying them before them in a way that they know what they mean. I want you to understand what these scriptures are really saying. So I'm going to teach you. I'm going to give you opportunities to ask me questions. I'm going, to, I'm going to open myself up for argument from you because I want to do everything I can to make sure you understand the meaning of these scriptures, not just hear them out loud with your ears as you, as you have for all of these years. So Paul would take the Old Testament Jewish scriptures and he would lay out the scripture promises that the Christ, the one who is Messiah that they talked about all the time, the Son of God, anointed by the Father and sent to earth as the Savior and King of God's people, Paul would show them whoever that is had to suffer and die and rise from the dead. That's what the Scriptures show. That's what I'm showing you from the Scriptures. Wherever you see the Scriptures talking about the Christ, these are the qualifications. This is how He will be recognized. Find that, and you've found the Christ. Now, Here in Acts chapter 17, Luke doesn't tell us what particular Old Testament passages Paul used to do that here. He doesn't give us that information. He did give us the information. We're not going to go back to it, but back in chapter 13, when Paul was in Antioch, he used David's psalm, Psalm 1610, that says this, and you're familiar with this. You will not leave my soul in Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. We know that song, And in Antioch, when Paul went to the Jews in the synagogue, this is the scripture that he reached back to, he grabbed that scripture, he laid it out in front of them, and he would say, here is a prophecy about the Christ. Now, yes, David wrote it, but it's obvious that what David wasn't talking about himself. Why? Because David said God's holy one will die. That's what Sheol is. It's the place of the dead, but his body won't corrupt it won't decay. It won't decompose. And they knew where David had been buried. They could have gone to David's tomb and gone in and found David's bones. And there's evidence that David's body was still decomposing at that point in time. So David wasn't talking about himself. But this that was an example of how Paul reasoned with the Jews. Old Testament scripture prophecy about Christ suffering and dying and rising from the dead. So be looking for the person that suffered and died and rose from the dead. And when you find him, you've found the Christ, okay? So again, Luke is not telling us which scripture promises or prophecies Paul used here in Thessalonica about the suffering and death and resurrection of Christ. My point is that's what he did. Then He would lay down next to that prophecy, next to that promise, the truth about the suffering and the death and the resurrection of whom? Jesus. Here's the prophecy. Here's the life, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, logical conclusion, Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. That's what he said to them in Thessalonica. It can't be anyone else. He alone qualifies because he alone suffered and died and rose from the dead. And Paul would then tell them, by the way, I've met him. I met him after his resurrection. I am one of the witnesses to the fact that not only did he suffer and die, but he has risen from the dead because I have met him in person, alive, after his resurrection. And this was Paul's custom everywhere he went. No matter which group of Jews it was, the women by the riverside in Philippi or the synagogue in Antioch or now here in Thessalonica, this was the approach that Paul used. This is how he handled the scriptures. This is how he interacted with the people that were were meeting together. Okay, And so here in Thessalonica, in this synagogue, those who listened asked questions. They made comments. They, they brought up arguments, and Paul kept reasoning with them this way week after week after week, which once again shows me that Paul wasn't there just going through the motions. Paul wasn't just saying, well, you know, Christ sent me out to do this, and even though you guys have been so stubborn and hard-hearted through the years, and I want to go on somewhere and just deal with the Gentiles, I won't do it because Christ told me I had to do it this way. Uh-uh, no, uh-uh. Paul has a genuine desire for his people the Jewish people, to understand the scriptures and to understand specifically who the Messiah is, who is the Christ. Well, here in Thessalonica, some did get it, right? Some some got what Paul was teaching them. Some got what the scriptures are saying about Jesus. Paul said, or Luke said, a great multitude of the Greeks. So there were Greek people who had converted to Judaism. That's why they were coming to the synagogue. So they, religiously, they switched teams. They decided to stop doing the idolatry thing and start doing the Judaism thing. So religiously, they became Jewish, not ethnically, obviously, but religiously, they had become Jewish. That's why they were coming to the synagogue. A great multitude of them believed, and, a, and more than a few, which means quite a few, prominent, highly respected, leading women. Probably Greek women, but maybe some Jewish women mixed in with this as well. These people heard the truth about Jesus, how he fulfilled the ultimate promise about the Christ, and they believed it. They believed Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, and they started following him on that day. Okay? Now, this is our pattern. This is this is what I was talking about. This is our pattern of discipleship. They saw Jesus, not with their eyeballs, you know, he was already ascended back into heaven by this point in time, but through the preaching of Of the apostles, through the teaching, through this reasoning, through this explaining and demonstrating and and using the Old Testament scriptures, they saw the truth about Jesus. And what they saw caused them to think so highly of Jesus that it produced what they started doing for Jesus. So, the clear sight of Jesus, who he is, what he did, that always produces action for Jesus. Now, get that. If you're here this morning and you claim, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Maybe you even used that that term before, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's a profession, but are there actions to back that up? Is there something about your life that shows you've seen him? Through the truth, you've seen his beauty. You've seen his glory. You've seen how wonderful he is. You've seen the truth of how he fulfills those Old Testament passages that nobody else fulfills. He alone suffered died, rose from the dead, I see that, I believe it, and it's impacting my life. Do you see that in in your life? And I'm going to keep asking you that question. Here, we're talking about this group of Thessalonians, okay? Here, it says in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, they joined Paul and Silas. After three weeks of being taught the truth about Jesus, they believed and they joined Paul and Silas. Now, what I want to consider this morning is, what does Luke mean by that? What does joining Paul and Silas look like? What did discipleship look like when they saw Jesus clearly for the very first time? And so I'm going to put up here on the screen four or five things for you this morning, depending on how time works for us or against us. But this is going to be uh, observations of, of discipleship in this congregation, people who saw Christ And this is what they did joining Paul and Silas. We're going to get the first two from Acts chapter 17, then we'll get the next three from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And so look at verse 5, if you will, Acts chapter 17, verse 5. Let me read these verses, and then I'll point out a couple of things that Luke shows us here. So this group in the synagogue joined Paul and Silas. They believed Jesus is the Christ, but the Jews who were not persuaded, Becoming envious, they're jealous of Paul and Silas and and people believing them and following them. So becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Okay, let me point out two things to you, okay? So here's the first thing. This group from the synagogue in Thessalonica, joined Paul and Silas, first off, in public recognition and persecution. Paul and Silas had already been doing that. That was already characteristic of them. But when these people from this synagogue in Thessalonica joined Paul and Silas, this is one of the ways they joined them, in public recognition and persecution. Now, it's obvious from this passage that the unbelieving Jews who lived here in Thessalonica who had been uh, worshiping there in the Jewish synagogue, they knew who these new believers were, right? That that seems very, very obvious. They they knew who was associated with Paul and with Silas. They knew where Paul and Silas were, were staying, right? So they knew who was supporting these guys. So they knew these people must agree with those guys, and this whole new message about the Christ and Jesus of Nazareth and all this stuff we don't believe we know who does believe it along with Paul and Silas, right? So the new believers hadn't hidden this. They didn't start thinking in their mind, like Joseph of Arimathea that we talked about uh, a few weeks ago and we talked about it in Sunday school again this morning. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. He, he, he believed that Jesus was Messiah, but he will not let anybody else know that because he was scared of the Jews. These people here in Thessalonica evidently didn't keep it secret. They must have lived this new profession, lived this new lifestyle openly. They didn't, they didn't act as secret disciples, secret followers of Jesus. They didn't wear disguises whenever they went to meet with the other believers, right? They didn't just come and go at night or or they didn't find some location outside of town and sneak out there during the darkness and sneak back in before dawn every time they met together. They didn't limit their public association with Paul and Silas, meaning they didn't limit their public association with Jesus Christ. They were very open with this new Christian identification and Christian lifestyle. And when persecution came to them because of that, did they hide from that? No, they didn't. Paul will later say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 that he had warned these people that they were going to suffer tribulation for believing in Jesus. He warned them. As he was teaching them, as they started to believe, he warned them that this was coming and it did come to them. Paul ended up saying that they suffered the same things from their Gentile countrymen that the Judean believers had suffered from the Jews who killed Jesus and the prophets. So here you have these New Thessalonian believers, persecution comes to them because of their association with Christ, and they didn't hide from it. They didn't run from it. They took that persecution. They, they accepted. They continued to believe even when they were threatened here with mob violence. So imagine being Jason, you've, you've used your house as a, as a B&B for, for Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. And now here comes this mob of unbelievers, and they are angry. Picture pitchforks, <laughs> and 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 hammers, and weapons, and and torches and lanterns, and they're at your door, and they want you to give up Paul and Silas because they want to hurt them, and if you don't give them up, what do you think is going to happen to you? So. Here, here's these these new Jason and probably others as well who have associated themselves with Paul and Silas and Jesus and this new Christianity and mob violence has come to your front door. What are you going to do? Well, they didn't give in. They didn't turn over Paul and Silas and Luke, Timothy. They didn't say, oh, yeah, they're they're hiding around the corner. Don't tell them that we told you. And but they're hiding around the corner over there. That's what would come naturally. Self-preservation says deflect that attention. It says turn them somewhere else to save your own skin, but this crew didn't do that. They they accepted what potentially could come to them for that association with Paul and Silas and Jesus Christ, and it did cost them something. No, they, they weren't beaten, they weren't attacked physically, but what did they do? Well, it says, verse 9, so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. We can't find this Paul and Silas. We can't find them, but you're going to pay us. Pay up. The only way we're leaving you alone, the only way we're going to leave them alone is if you pay us off. So Jason and the other believers had to fork over money. We don't know how much, almost like they were posting bail for Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. So it cost them monetarily. They had to pull out their wallet. They had to pull out their checkbook. And they had to pay because of their association with Paul and Silas, because of their association with Jesus. And again, I wonder what we would do in the same situation. Those of us who claim to be disciples of Christ. Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe. I believe. What if we were faced with this? What if we were faced with a mob of unbelieving, angry people with potential for physical harm and real financial cost? What would we do? I can tell you this. How we're seeing Christ will determine how open we're willing to be. How open we're willing to be with our connection to Him and how much persecution we're willing to take because of our connection to Jesus Christ. It'll all be tied to what we're seeing of Jesus If we're seeing very little, we're not going to risk very much for him. If we're seeing his glory and his beauty and his wonder and his greatness, well, sure, I want to be connected to him, and I'll take whatever comes because of it. It all gets tied back to what are we seeing of Jesus Christ. They were seeing it at that point in time, so they were willing to to put themselves out there publicly and take what persecution came because of it. But let me show you something else that comes, and it's directly connected to this as well. They also joined Paul and Silas by serving Christ's people. Now, again, I said the easy, the natural, the self-serving response here would be to give up Paul and Silas to that mob. Again, uh, you know, naturally, we're going to minimize risk. Naturally, we're going to protect ourselves first, maybe worry about somebody else secondarily. But these guys, these believers didn't do that. Now, what did they do? So they said they couldn't find Paul and Silas and Timothy when they came to Jason's house. Why couldn't they find them? Is this a Rahab story? Had they hidden the apostles somewhere else? And when the mob came looking for them, they said, "We don't know where they are. I haven't seen them in days. And if that is what they had done, we've got an ethical discussion on our our plate. You know, was Rahab right for lying? To the people who came to her front door, would these Christians have been right if they had lied and said, we haven't seen them for days, can't help you, sorry, when they're hiding back in the garage someplace? We're not going to have that discussion this morning. But at the very least, they didn't tell them where Christ's servants were. Why? Because they wanted the best for their brethren. They wanted the very best for the servants of the Lord They couldn't think of letting harm come to Paul or come to Silas. And they even risked harm to themselves to protect their brethren. They didn't give them up to the mob. And then think about, surely right after that, after the the trouble had died down that night at least... I'm sure they wanted Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy to stay there in Thessalonica as long as they could because they're enjoying their company. They're learning from them. So they would want to keep them there for their own benefit. But did they do that? No. Verse 10 said, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Why? Because they love them. They love them. They don't want to see harm come to them. They don't want to see tomorrow or the next day after that the mob find them and beat them to a pulp right there in the city or throw them in jail right there in the city. And on top of this, they don't want them to be stopped in what they're doing for the Lord. These men are proclaiming the truth, and they want people to see the truth about Jesus and be saved and become disciples of Jesus Christ. If Paul and Silas are stopped from their work here in Thessalonica, that hurts many more brethren who are out there potentially as well. And so these people are showing once again that when you see the glory of Jesus Christ, it it, it makes you see glory in everything that's connected to Christ. It's not just him. I hate to say it this way, <clears throat> but it's not just him. It's everything else that flows from him. It's everything else that's connected to him. It's everything else that he's doing. It's everything else that's being done for him. All of that is beautiful to you. All of that is wonderful to you. All of that you want to be maximized and you want it to be spread out and you want it to flourish, especially concerning Christ's people. Those people that he loved so much that he gave his life and lived and died on their behalf, you love them too. And so you're going to do anything you can possibly do for them to have the very best in life, this life and eternal life as well. And folks, that, I think, is probably the clearest sign of a a disciple. You look through Scripture and you see how true believers or Christians or those who are born again or followers of Jesus or disciples, all these different terms that we use to describe that person, if you look at the the common characteristic that, that most every apostle talks about, what is it? It's love. The love of Christ is placed within you. You see the love of Christ for you and for other people, and that, to some degree, comes out immediately. It comes out automatically, and it shows up in the way you live your life from that point forward. And so, I bring you right back to our questions again. Are, are you loving that way? You, know, you look at your life and the pattern of your... I'm not just talking about one day versus another day. Look at the pattern of your life. Look at the last week, two weeks, three weeks... And are you loving like the Thessalonian disciples loved? Are you loving like Paul and Silas loved people, especially God's people? Are you loving like Christ loved his people, giving himself for us to have the very best there is for all of eternity? Are you loving that way? And I'll tell you, your answer to that question will betray what you're seeing of Jesus. Because if you are loving, as a pattern, if you are loving God's people that way, like the Thessalonians did here for Paul and Silas and Timothy and and Luke, you're probably doing it because you're seeing the glory of Jesus and his love. You're, you're, You're overwhelmed in how he has loved you. You're overwhelmed that he would love you, and therefore what's flowing from you is love for other people, love for the very same people as he has loved them as well. So you see two characteristics here that Luke gives us from his observation of his time with them. They joined Paul and Silas in public recognition and persecution, and they joined Paul and Silas in serving Christ's people. Now, I want you to leave Acts chapter 17, go forward with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, this is a this is a wonderful chapter, and I wish we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks in it. Um, we're not going to do that this morning, obviously. We're 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 just going to pick out two or three observations. We could have made a lot more this morning because Paul gives us quite a bit from his memory. But First Thessalonians chapter one, I want to read for us. Um, let me read for us verses two through ten. Okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. You follow along. I'll read this quickly. Paul says this, We give thanks to God always for you all, all of you Thessalonian believers, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, persecution, right? With joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, I'd love to read the rest of the the letter, but we don't have time for that this morning. Know this, okay? So just a little context here. This letter was written to the Thessalonian church. This letter was written to the very same group of believers that we just read about back in Acts chapter 17. At least that was the beginning of this group, and then others were added to it since then. But this letter was written just shortly after Paul and Silas left there. So when the brethren snuck them out of town in the middle of the night for their safety and they went on to Berea, this letter Paul wrote back to them not long after that, probably just a matter of a few months, two or three months later. So don't have in your mind that this came years and years and years later. No, weeks, months later is all it was. So what that means is Paul's observations of them here were still fresh in his mind. For him, it was probably almost like this had just happened because it had, Just within the last months, within the last weeks, is when he had seen these things in the lives of the Thessalonians, okay? Which tells us something else as well. It tells us that these things that Paul is observing about them here, even things that he's been hearing about them, those things happen to those people or from those people quickly after they saw Christ. Paul is not observing things that developed in this church years and years down the road with some sanctification and some maturity. No, this stuff had to happen pretty much immediately for Paul to hear about it and observe it just weeks or months later. Okay, so keep that in mind. What did Paul notice? Well, let, look back at verse 8, and let me point out the first thing for you. Paul said, For from you, from you Thessalonians, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so we do not need to say anything. All right, so number three is these Thessalonian believers, this church, this congregation of disciples joined Paul and Silas in proclaiming the gospel. Okay, Paul and Silas were already doing that. I mean, Paul was the one sent out by Christ to do this. Paul brought Silas along with him to do this very thing. They, they, they grabbed Timothy and Lystra or Derby, brought him along to train him to do the very same thing too. So that group left Thessalonica in a hurry. They went on to Berea from there. Then they went down to Athens and then they went on down to Corinth where we spent so much time talking about the letters that Paul wrote to them. When they got to those places, when Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke got to Berea and they got to Athens and they got to Corinth, when they got to those places and they started to do what what they had come there to do, to share the gospel with the people in that area and tell them about the power that the gospel has and how it changes lives and, and they got ready to tell them how it had changed the lives of the people in Thessalonica, guess what they heard? The people there, the people in Berea, the people in Athens, the people in Corinth said, oh yeah, we already heard about them. We know that already. We know all about them. We we know what took place when you came there and preached the gospel. We know how it changed their lives. We know what has gone on in their hearts since that point in time. Word had already gotten to these other towns. Paul called it sounding forth. It had sounded forth. You ever visited a, a a cavern or a cave before, and you stood in the mouth of the cave and you said, "Hello, what happens? You hear it over and over and over again, don't you? It bounces down into the cavern, it bounces off the walls and you'll you only said it once, but but you're going to hear it over and over and over and over. It reverberates that's this word for sounding forth when When Paul and Silas got to Berea and they got to Athens and they got to Corinth. These people are telling them what had happened in Thessalonica just a few months earlier. How did it get from Thessalonica to Corinth? It started from these Thessalonian believers. They started sounding it forth. What this is telling us is pretty soon after they heard about Christ, when they, when they saw the beauty of Christ, when Paul said, here's the Old Testament scriptures about the Christ, he'll suffer, die, rise again. And Jesus suffered and died and rose again. Therefore, he's the Christ. Their eyes were opened. They saw the glory of Jesus. They fell in love with Jesus. They, they committed themselves to Jesus, and they started talking. And so you can just imagine them talking to their family, talking to their friends, and talking to their acquaintances in Thessalonica. And, oh, what about the people that have come to Thessalonica to do business and are leaving Thessalonica to go somewhere else? They're talking to them too, to strangers. Everybody that they can get an audience with. They are talking about Jesus, and they're talking about this great news, and they're talking about how they, their lives have been turned upside down, and they're believing things they've never believed before, and they're, they're experiencing things they've never experienced before, changes to their lives, and hope, and peace, and love, and, and all the stuff that's going on right away, they're talking about it right away, and that word about the God, the word of the Lord, the word about the Lord, and who He is, and what He's done, and and, and what the truth about him does to people, that word and their faith in the Lord is traveling because they're talking. Because not only are they not scared of what's going to happen to them, they're happy about what's happened to them. They're proud of what the Lord has done and is doing in their lives. They want other people to know about it. That's what Paul and Silas were doing everywhere they went. But they get to these towns ready to do that, and they don't even have to do it. It's, it's already gotten there wouldn't that be amazing you know we send out a we send out a missionary to go somewhere else and take the gospel and when they get there oh we've already heard that gospel from the people in your church back in winston-salem wouldn't it be so cool to, to to understand how that started and and how it moved and how it got there but the fact that it started because we're just so thrilled about jesus that we're telling everybody what we know about him now I think this is what discipleship looks like, but at the same time, I think that we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot here in the United States. Because I think when we talk about evangelism in the church in the United States, we give the impression that if someone's going to share the gospel with someone, then you kind of got to preach some organized outline when you do it. You know? If you're going to talk to somebody about Jesus, you've got to go through the doctrine of God, and the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of sin, and the doctrine of substitution, and You need to know your facts before you get started. You need to anticipate their questions and their arguments before you get started. And what ends up happening is people get so intimidated and so scared that they end up not saying anything at all because they're afraid they're going to get caught in a situation they can't get out of. They might ask me something that I don't have an answer for. And and so we just go mute. It's not that we don't believe. It's not that we don't love Jesus. We're just scared to talk or we're too confused to talk. And folks, what we know about these Thessalonians is by the time Paul got to Berea and Athens and Corinth, there hadn't been enough time elapsed for these people to build some huge doctrinal knowledge. I mean, th- this is not years of teaching and deep study and sanctification because of the truth. This is people who just learned about Jesus and started talking about Jesus And the word got to Berea and Athens before Paul could even get there. They're not not bringing this up from deep doctrinal study or doctrinal knowledge. It's just the sight of Christ, who he is, and what that's done to me. And I'm telling everybody. And the people in Berea are telling Paul when he gets there. And the people in Corinth are telling Paul, yeah, we know all about the Thessalonians. Their lives were just totally turned upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the way it ought to be with every disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't worry about having a seminary education before you start talking about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Brag about Jesus. Valerie and I went to Utah, what, summer before last, and when we came back, probably all of you were sick of us because we we had our phones out showing you pictures of everything that we saw in Utah. Why? Because we saw just incredible sights, just beautiful things, things you don't see here in the East, and we wanted everybody to see what we had seen. Shouldn't it be that way about Christ? I mean, shouldn't that just come naturally for us? It's not that we, again, we don't have to have this, this incredible presentation when we do it. It's just, this is the promised one. This is the one who is the, the anointed savior and king of God's people. We found him. He's the only one who ever rose from dead. It's got to be him. And I want you to know what I know. It's not much, but I want you to know. And look at the impact on my life. That's what these Thessalonian believers did when they joined Paul and Silas. They joined them in proclaiming the gospel. Verse 9, let me show you the fourth one. Verse 9, Paul adds to this. Well, verse 9 or, yeah, okay. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true. So, number four on our list is they joined Paul and Silas in utter devotion to God. Utter devotion. Now, think about Paul and Silas for a second. Timothy 2. They, those three guys had not been what we think of, what we would describe as idolaters before they met Christ. Those were Jewish men. Okay? And the Jews believed in one God. And they believed in the right God, Jehovah. But even though they believed in the right God, Jehovah, their system of religion was still a type of idolatry. Because their perspective, their view of this God, their presentation of this God, and their worship of this God was all man-made. It was invented in the imaginations of men. So even though it was the right target, it was the exact it was the wrong presentation of him. And the wrong worship and service to him. So it was still a type of idolatry. Even though it wasn't like the more traditional types of idolatry that we talk about. And and we're going to talk about here in just a second. And their worship, their idolatry was just as consuming as someone who has 16 idols up on a shelf in their house. These guys lived to practice Judaism. Which meant they lived to obey the law. They lived to follow the traditions of the elders. And in Paul's case, he even lived to defend his religion. And he and they all did that to appease and please their version of God. Not the right version, their version of God, okay? Until they saw Jesus as the Christ, then everything changed. Then they turned from their idolatrous worship And they were devoted to Jesus Christ alone at that point. Devoted to follow only him, and trust only him, and worship only him, and serve only him, and live for only him, obsessed with him. Devout toward him, okay? And Paul is probably the most vivid picture of that transformation, right? Just an immediate radical change from idolatrous worship to Christ-centered devotion. That's what happened to him on that Damascus road. We know that when Paul was in Thessalonica, most of the believers there were converted out of Judaism just like he had been. Even those Gentile believers that, that Luke talked about back in Acts chapter 17, even they had been converts to Judaism first. That's what they were doing there in the synagogue. They were Greek people, but religiously they had determined to walk away from their Idols, their gods, their statutes and statues and worship the one God of Israel, okay? But by the time Paul writes this first letter back to them, just a few months later after that, there must have been a whole lot more converts who had come not from the Jewish synagogue, but they had come straight out of pagan idolatry because Paul describes them here as what? They had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, that statement tells a whole lot about who these people had been. Just like most Romans, people who lived all over the Roman Empire, these Thessalonians had worshipped a whole plethora of gods. If you do any study on them, you'll find names like Aphrodite, and Demeter, and Zeus, and Artemis, and Apollo, and Isis, and Serapis and Dionysius. And when we say they worshipped these gods, gods and goddesses, these idols, we're not just talking about lip service. Their idolatry was something that pretty much dominated every day of their lives. For all of these different gods and goddesses, there were daily practices of worship. Things that they had to do for this god, for this goddess. It, you didn't go a day without doing these things. There were sacred meals that were prepared and eaten. There were regular ceremonies and annual feasts and festivals and public pr- pr- processions I won't say professions they were public processions where things were put on display and symbols were built and they were marched through the street to commemorate this god or this goddess and a day devoted particularly to that god or goddess this is who they were they even had their own patron god his name was Cabarus and Cabarus supposedly favored their city. He 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 thought especially highly of the Thessalonians. So they thought especially highly of him as well and did special practices of worship for him. And then you add to that the fact that Macedonia like most of the Roman Empire was a very strong area for emperor worship. Meaning what? They believed the Caesar was a god too. And so there was a temple to Caesar, there were priests Dedicated to worship for Caesar. There were inscriptions. There were festival days to worship Caesar, in addition to all of these imaginary gods and goddesses, too. This is my point. These people that Paul is talking about, these Thessalonian believers, they were people who had been immersed in pagan worship. They had lots of objects for their attention and lots of practices for all of those gods. The worship of idols was the fabric of life for them, okay? Get that picture in your mind. So turning away from idolatry was turning away from everyone else who worshiped those gods with them, which in their case probably would have been everybody else they knew. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, acquaintances. This was the city of Thessalonica. This was the tenor of the city. This was the nature of these people. So you turn away from all of those gods. You're not just turning away from the gods and the temple and the priests and the priestesses and the sacred meals and the festivals. You're turning away from all of those other people who practiced all of that stuff with you every day of your life before. This was turning away from life as they knew it. And to do that takes something monumental. That takes something absolutely convincing. It's got to be something that you consider to be well worth giving up all of that other stuff and all of those other people. And to turn away from all of those objects at one time, to focus all of their attention uh, on only one new object. And this wasn't a matter of, okay, we already have 48 gods and goddesses. We're going to make it 49. We're going to add one more to the list. That's not it. The list got thrown away And all of them were replaced with one, and only one. No others in addition, no others in replacement. This was the replacement. And to turn to that object with just as much, if not more, devotion, that is so telling about these people. That's what Paul is bringing out about these people. That's what Paul saw himself. But then when he gets to Berea and he gets to Athens and he gets to Corinth, that's the word that has already come to those towns. They're telling Paul that. We know about the Thessalonians. They turn from all of their idols to the one God. They turn to serve him and serve him alone. Now they're devout toward the one true God and no other idols at the same time. This is a disciple. This is what a disciple is. And again, we have to ask ourselves the question, when we describe ourselves as disciples, could this be said of us, people who watch us, people who know about us, people who have listened to us describe what has taken place, would the description to be, oh yeah, so and so, he he walked away from everything that was supreme to him before. Everything that she used to be involved in that captivated her and, and her life was devoted to it. I mean, there wasn't a day that went by that she wasn't involved in this, watching this, practicing this, going here, being with these people. She walked away from all of that for the one true God. And now her life is completely wrapped up in the one true God. Only one. Just this one. That's it. If people watched you, listened to you, described you, would that be the description? The These disciples in Thessalonica joined Paul and Silas this way by walking away from their idolatry to the one true God. Here's here's the last one. Let me give it to you quickly, okay? We can't just leave this out. Verse 10, Paul went on to say this. And you, you did this too. And you turned away from your idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Number five, they joined Paul and Silas waiting for Christ. He's waiting for Christ. Now, now, Paul's the only player in this drama who met Christ personally, face-to-face, bodily, right? road to Damascus. He's the only one. And he's the one, primary one, who told them about Jesus. Let me tell you, Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament scriptures, suffered, died, rose from the dead. He's the one, and I know he's the one because I met him. After he rose from the dead, he came to me on the road to Damascus. I saw him with my own eyes. I had a conversation with him with my own mouth. So I know he's alive. Paul's the only one in this group who can say that. But having said that to them, these Thessalonians believe that evidence so strongly. They believe Paul's word, his eyewitness testimony. They believe that so strongly and they see Jesus as so attractive because of it. What do they want? They want to meet Jesus too. That's what's now important to them. That is now the focus of their attention. We want to see him too. We've seen him through your word, Paul. We see him through the Old Testament promises and prophecies. The truth that's been given to us about his life and death and resurrection. We see he's the one. He's Christ. He's Messiah. He's the anointed Savior and King of God's people. We believe that, and we believe that so wholeheartedly. We believe that so strongly. We think He's so beautiful and so great and so attractive that what we want more than anything else to see Him too, with our own eyes. And the word that Paul uses here, that they waited for His Son from heaven, heaven. we use the word wait as though it's just some passive waste of time. You know, someone's just waiting around, they're getting nothing done. But that's the opposite of what Paul is describing here. This is a waiting that is thought through, it is on purpose, it is for purpose. It's doing something. It's doing the most important thing. It's doing what you want more than anything else. Now, after you guys are all gone this morning, something will happen that happens every Sunday morning after you leave. We get ready to go, Valerie goes to the bathroom. And I don't go on out to the parking lot and shut the gate. I don't go on to the car and sit down in the car. I go to the office and stand there and wait. Why? Because I know she's going to come there. And the next thing I do in my day, I want to do with her. I'm going to go to lunch with her. And so I wait there expecting her to be there very soon and knowing that we're going to go do something else together that I really enjoy doing with her. That's waiting on purpose, with confidence, with expectancy, with eagerness. That's what these people are doing here. They've been told Christ came once, Jesus was here, he is the Christ, he has left, but he's coming back. He's coming back. And on their calendar, (laughs) they don't know the day to put on that calendar, but that's the next event on their calendar. What do we want more than anything else? Do we want... We want a conference with Paul two weeks from now so we can learn more? Nope, that's not it. We want to travel over to Ephesus and become missionaries ourselves to the people in Ephesus. Nope, that's not it. We want to see Jesus. I have seen enough to know that I want to see more. He's so beautiful, I want more beauty. I've seen so much glory from him in the truth about him that I want to see the glory that comes from him. And oh, by the way, he's coming back. To judge mankind. He's coming back and there's wrath from God that's going to be doled out through him to some people. But guess what? They're waiting for God's son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're not afraid of that wrath. We're not a bit worried about the judgment that's going to be handed out by Jesus. Why? Because he's already delivering us from it through his death and resurrection. And so, come on, Jesus. Back of the book says, even so, Lord, come quickly. And I think this is is what you see from a true disciple. Someone who has seen the truth about Jesus has seen enough to know, I want to see more. Yeah, I want to see more from from the word of God. I want to be taught. I I love sitting under Kevin in, in Sunday school because he teaches me more about Jesus. And it's great, but it's not the same as being in the immediate presence of Jesus himself. And that's what a disciple should want, right? Because a disciple says, Jesus is so great, I'm leaving everything else to follow him. That's what a disciple is. And the more I see of him, the more I know there is to see of him. And everything I'm seeing is better than everything else. It's, it's so appetizing. It tastes so good that I want as much as I can get. So I'm going to sit and I'm wait for Jesus. He promised he's coming back and I'm looking, I'm waiting. I'm confident. I believe it. He said it. His father said that about him. All of the prophets that were sent out, all of the apostles that he sent out said he's coming back. The angels said to the apostles, the same way you watched him go into heaven, he's going to come back again. Jesus told those same apostles, I'm going to come on the clouds with glory and all the world's going to see me and mourn over it, but I'm going to send my angels to gather together my elect from the four corners of the earth. I believe all of that and I can't wait for it. That's a disciple. That's a strong disciple. So again, I ask the question. We measure ourselves against an imperfect example. I'm not putting these Thessalonians up because they're perfected. They're not. They're sinners. They were not perfect. But I put them up as an illustration of what solid discipleship, strong discipleship looks like. What do you see when you compare yourself to those Qualities, those characteristics. What you see will be tied to what you are seeing of Jesus. If you've gone long stretches of time and you're not seeing Him in the truth, then you're not going to see these very strongly in your life. If you're going through a period where you are seeing Him, you're reading, you're thinking, you're being taught, you're sitting under preaching. You're having conversations with people about Jesus, so your mind is saturated with truths about Jesus. Well, then this stuff's going to show up even more, especially number five. I can't wait to see him myself. Even so, Lord, come quickly. I want to be with you for all of eternity, for all the right reasons, not just to get away from this, but to be with you. You're the focal point. If you're seeing Jesus here, you're going to want to see him that way forever and ever and ever. Would you describe yourself as a strong disciple? Do you want to be a strong disciple? This has been my prayer this week for for me, but it's also been my prayer for us, that the Holy Spirit will develop us as a group, into a group, a congregation with these characteristics. That'll bring glory to Christ. That'll bring joy to his people. And guess what, folks? It can happen. And I'll take that a step further as I close this down. It will happen. If this is the desire in the heart, this is what we're asking for, and we're going looking for Jesus, I will guarantee you the Holy Spirit will satisfy that desire. He will show you Jesus, and the more you see of Jesus individually, and the more we see of Jesus as a group, we'll look more and more and more like this. And our joy will be wrapped up in Jesus and glory will go to him through our lives, just like it's still going to him through the Thessalonians' lives 2,000 years later this morning. That'll happen through us as well. Let's pray for it, okay? Join me. Father, my prayer is simple. Do this in the lives of every one of your people here this morning. I don't know who they are any more than they know, who everyone is. Only you know the hearts. I suspect most everyone here this morning is already a disciple of your son. Father, for every person who is, I pray that you'd strengthen them, grow them, deepen their appreciation for your son by pushing aside all of our distractions, all of our worldly in- interests that take time away from us looking for and looking at Jesus. And I pray that you'll put us in a place where all we have to look at is Jesus. Because I know what will happen. I've experienced it in short periods through, through my life when I was submissive to the Holy Spirit and, and actually did this. They're the, they're the greatest times of my life happiest times, most fruitful, productive, satisfying, hopeful, eager times of my life. And my own sin breaks that. But I pray that you will do that in every life of every disciple in this room this morning. And Father, I pray that you'll do it to us as a group, that we won't just be individualistic, but as a congregation, as an assembly, as a family, that we'll be pursuing Jesus together and looking at him together and talking about him together and enjoying him together so that the group like the Thessalonians the group bears these characteristics and lastly father I pray for anyone who came in here this morning not yet a disciple they came to church for some reason I, I don't know what it was but they came and they've heard about Jesus this morning they've seen some things in scripture about Jesus they've heard me bragging about Jesus and Father, I pray that you will not let them walk away from what they've seen and heard. I pray that your spirit will work in their hearts to open their eyes and their ears and their minds spiritually so that they don't just see and hear physically, but they see and hear spiritually, that this will be the day that they see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ through the word. And I pray that this is the day that they start following Jesus. And that this afternoon, they're already going to people saying, come, let me show you the guy who told me everything I ever did. Father, I pray that that'll be the day that they have today by your grace. Father, use your word in ways that will glorify your son. And I pray it all in his name. Amen.